1: The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, The Reasonable Voice, and I welcome you to The Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today is quite a fascinating triple hitter, I'd like to call him David Bendernagel, and I'll spell that for you: B-E-N-D-E-R-A-G-E-L. David is a, a writer, an artist, a mitigation lawyer. He has a he has a bit of a roller coaster ride tale to tell us, but it's mostly good, and and he does a tremendous amount of help. Um, using all three of his talents, writing, his artwork, and his legal expertise to help people. And we're going to talk to him about that. But first of all, let's introduce David Bendernagel. David, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. And it's good to talk to you again. I know we spoke on Charlottesville this week months ago. And between your schedule and mine, it's been difficult to reconnect. But I'm really especially happy to have you on The Reasonable Voices because... We reach a much broader audience. I guess the first thing I want to ask, and I know the last time we talked was pretty much about your book, The End of the City, which you plan to re-release this summer. I want to talk about, I think first, you recently attended a conference uh, called the Fair Play Art and Social Justice. What did you do there, and what is it? What is the fair play, uh, art, and uh, social justice? Sure. Um, well, it's, it's kind of funny, because it,
0: uh, it it circles back to the beginning. I remember when we first spoke, we were talking about uh, when we first met, and we
2: met at UVA, a yes.
0: uh, memorial service for
2: uh, Werner Sensbach. Yes. And uh, this uh, took me back into the world of uh, this Recent
0: conference to be back into the world of printmaking, which I thought was really uh, a pleasure and, and really interesting, but also uh, had to do with the work I'm doing currently. So it's a, it was a nice uh, sort
2: of combination of different things. Mm-hmm. But uh, so Saint Ambrose is a, a
0: Saint Ambrose University is a small uh, university in eastern Iowa, and uh, their art department was. Part of this uh, well it was the host of the, of the conference which was fair, uh, fair play art and social justice and they were the, the art department was kind of piggybacking on kids year of social justice at university where they were you know each year the school uh, addresses some theme in, in a lot of its public functions I guess uh-huh. and so the art department decided to to do something in response to this idea of social justice and so they put on an, uh, a conference of how uh, art could uh, combine with social justice or address uh, social justice issues uh, uh-huh. you know outside of the confines of the you know the studio or the
2: gallery yes um, so it was kind of in, an interesting
0: opportunity for me because uh, my wife, Maggie Booth, who's a printmaker and, uh, and a sculptor, she uh, remained in contact. She went to graduate school in Iowa and she, uh, for printmaking, and she remained in contact with some artists and uh, other colleagues in Iowa, and so that's how we became aware of the conference, but I was able to Go there as a part of my work as a mitigation specialist, which was kind of a special opportunity for us. So it was a return to art, but it was also a, uh, a literal mixing of art and social justice for me personally, because I was going there uh, representing a client who who I've been working with on
2: art yes.
0: um, as part of as part of his uh, you know as part of our representation of him. So that.
1: Maybe I should explain what it is that I do. I was just, you know, (laughs) I was just going to say maybe I should ask him to explain exactly what I mean. I, I, you, you are an attorney and, uh, and trained in law, uh, but you keep referring to yourself as a mitigator. Can you make that distinction for us laymen? So I have a law degree, so I'm trained in in law, but I do not have a bar license and I'm not operating as an attorney in this
0: capacity. Mm -hmm. What I'm doing is, uh, so I have legal training, but I'm a a mitigation specialist is a person who, well, I should back up a little bit. Our office, it's a public defender that represents clients who are charged with uh, capital crimes. Mm -hmm. And so that's crimes where they may be
2: eligible for the death penalty. Yes. And so, what a mitigation, what a mitigation specialist does is, is one way to
0: think of it is as a, a life historian. So you look into the life of the client, you research the life of the client in order to, you know, put their uh, behavior into context and kind of understand them as a human being. Then, uh, you know, with the idea that if they can be understood as a human being, then they um, may be spared uh, the death penalty. So in Virginia, as in a lot of other places, uh, you have a guilt innocence phase of, any, of, of for a capital murder trial. There's a guilt innocence phase, and then there's a separate sentencing hearing where you have the opportunity to make the case that the death penalty is not a fitting punishment for this
2: person. Hmm.
0: And part of that is understanding who this person is and and humanizing them for a jury so that they understand that. So uh, that they have more than just a list of charges by which to interpret this person uh, and, and kind of receive this person. And it's our hope that you can, that if you can see the person as a human being, that then the jury uh, will act in a merciful and just manner and, and, and allow this person to live. Um, not all cases get to that phase. Some cases resolve ahead of that. Uh, but in any case, my job is to prepare with that in mind, like, how, how do we understand this person, who is this guy, then try and get the, the sort of, the, just a complex portrait of who this person is, rather than a sort of simplistic narrative of client, you know, defendant bad.
1: In other words, the accused is more than his crime, or the crime he's accused of. Um, right. Yeah, how did he get that, how did he get to that point? You say, of course, not every defendant gets to this phase or is offered this particular. How does one, how does a defendant get chosen to have this sort of program of you mitigating? How does that, how's that selection made? Right,
0: and so while well, every every person who's charged with these types of crimes has uh, the opportunity to present this evidence, I, well, I, but you're uh, waxing on to and. Well, that I said was that uh, was that it doesn't always get to that phase, and I, I think just to kind of clarify what I meant there, you know, some cases resolve before you even get to a trial, and uh, so uh-huh. a client might a client might take a plea, or a case is dismissed, or you know, or the or the Commonwealth might take. Off the table, so to speak, and then that kind of changes the complexion of the of the case and the process and how it works. So you know, it's it, not
2: about everybody who's charged with capital crime ends up going to trial. is what I meant by that. Yeah, I um, however, uh, I, I think to add to that, um, what
0: we do in our office is is special in a sense in that you know for decades and decades. You know, death penalty cases weren't always tried the same way, and so it's more of a recent phenomenon that there are offices that specialize in this type of work. So you have lawyers that are, you know, experts in in trying these types of cases, and then you also have uh, a sort of growth within the, the role of you know the role that mitigation plays in these cases, and so you have you end up having mitigation specialists who end up get, having a lot of experience working with clients, getting to know them, uh, researching their history, and that, that doesn't just come from talking to the client, it also comes from, you know, analysis and collection of records, um, and then interviews of anybody the client comes uh, come into contact with. And that's all a long, uh, sort of a long explanation leading back to this art project, which is, um, you know, during the course of a recent case, Um, And I can't get too much into the specifics of that case, but uh, I found out that there was a sort sort of something in common between the client and I, in that we were both interested
2: in writing and art. And
0: so, and and it got me thinking about, you know, now, as a mission specialist, one of the goals is to look into this person's past to understand them. But another one of the goals that I felt like we could develop even more is looking into this future, you know, and looking into the client's future. Mm-hmm. This, this client, you know, how uh, how are they going to live uh, going forward? Um, and that is, like, how are they going to uh, have a positive life as they undergo the criminal justice process and then uh, assuming that they uh, are spared and end up going to make a contribution, live a positive life, live a healthy and constructive you life know, Time that they have left, um, and, and you know, so what can we do for the client to, to do that? To, to and, and I think that that aids society, and that the client is contributing to society in some constructive way, and, and it isn't a threat to society, but also, you know, it does a lot for the individual in terms of, you know, just the person being able to healthy and, and and be happy to the to the extent that they can under under kind of adverse circumstances. You know, and, and if some clients, you know, want to redeem themselves or, or show our expressment of remorse in some way. Or you know, you have a variety of, of reactions to this. one thing that I found with this call, I found very was that, you know, art and this isn't you know, art isn't right for every person, but it 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 might be and where the, that is something that the person could latch on to and, and build from. And so we started exploring that, and we ended up, Maggie and I ended up per- participating in a project at St. Ambrose where we made a, a small pamphlet, like uh, prints, that were prints and writing that were sewn together into a pamphlet and submitted it as part of a project at St. Ambrose, and it was ultimately shown in a gallery at St. Ambrose during the conference. So that was really...
1: A gratifying project well so you your wife maggie we should also mention that you and maggie are parents as well as married to each other but your wife maggie's prints and your writing and mitigation and you sort of uh, collaborated together with a client is that's what i'm hearing you um uh, yeah so, uh-huh. so, so uh that's correct so what happened was
0: uh, Matt Yead saw a call, uh, like an invitation for applications for what's called a uh, printmaking uh, portfolio exchange, and where an artist, generally in these kind of projects, a printmaker, uh, the printmaker who's facilitating the project will invite people to, will either invite people to participate or invite people to apply to participate. And what happens is, you know, say there's 20 artists, each artist, um, or all the artists are responding to a theme. Mm -hmm. In this case, Justice. Uh, The theme was Justice to kind of coincide with the conference. And all the artists make their goal is to make a print that responds to the theme and then uh, reproduce that print 20 times. Say there's 20 artists in the group, everybody makes 20, you know, um, a series of 20, and then sends them to the project facilitator who then distributes... Everybody's print, uh, the copies of the prints, into 20 separate portfolios that are then shipped back to all the artists. So that's sort of a maybe confusing way of thinking, but um, in the end, you end up with one print of each artist's response to the theme. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you know, by, by making 20 prints, you end up getting 20 different prints in the end, in a really nice folder. And you know, that's a, kind of a common practice among printmakers, but in this case, when applied, Maggie and I had the idea of, you know, if we're really going to, you know, how is the way, what is the way that we're going to respond to this theme? And we thought, well, one way to address social justice and to kind of break out of the, you know, just talking to ourselves, talking amongst ourselves as artists was to to reach out to one of my clients who's expressed an interest in art art and writing and, and work with him to create uh, something beautiful that he could be proud of, and something that, that um spoke to the you know, the difficulty and sadness and, and the challenge of the situation that he's in
1: so and was this so particular we, client oh, is, is this particular client facing uh, uh the death penalty possibly
0: it's a possibility and and uh that the case is still in progress, and for that reason I can't get into okay. too much but But the case, uh, it's a very, you know, very serious charges in the case and very uh, possible serious consequences. And so there's a, you know, a kind of a cloud hanging over this person and and it's not quite resolved yet. Um, And so in that circumstance, it's kind of challenging. There's a lot of things you're working on. You're working on. Getting through the legal process and 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 sur- surviving your your time in the state-run facility or county-run facility, whatever the case may be, and you know the effort is to to see how we can you know what what good can we do while we're in this situation. So there's a lot of moving parts in terms of working with your attorneys, working with your mitigation specialist, you know, to, to the day-to-day task of 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 compiling your history and, and working with your legal representation to face your case, but then, you know, as a nice added benefit, it was, let's see if we can work on something positive going forward. So I proposed to him this idea, like, hey, let's let's do a little writing and through this creative writing, maybe we can process some of the things that you're going through and some of the things that I'm encountering as a mitigation specialists working with you, you know, we can kind of share our perspectives. And so we, uh, started off just exchanging writing, like I did a little writing, then he would do a little writing, and we kind of respond to each other back and forth. And from that, we selected two writing pieces that we thought spoke to uh, where he's at right now and where where I'm at right now. And then we framed that with some uh, photography that Maggie had uh, Maggie had made some sort of took some photos and then collected some photos from other resources and. And made them into this, these images that were sewn together and then enclosed in those, yeah, enclosed in a, sort of a folder so to speak or a pamphlet, were these texts that he wrote and I wrote. So it, it was an interesting collaboration. And in then it was it was text, it was image. Um, it called upon Maggie's bookmaking skills, and it's one of the things in addition to printmaking that she studied while she was in school was, was bookmaking. And so she did some hand selling of the, of the binding, and it was uh, turned into a really nice document. And we ended up making a series of approximately uh, 20 of those, and then uh, sent those to Iowa, where they were one of them, or a couple of them were showcased in the gallery, and then others were collected for distribution to the other artists.
1: You know, David, th- this is absolutely fascinating to me. I'm listening to you and thinking of all the things that have been pulled together the people, different backgrounds. Similar backgrounds in some cases, you know, the interests and abilities, talents, but we're talking about photography, we're talking about printmaking, we're talking about bookmaking, bookbinding and writing and legal mitigation and facing p- potential catastrophic punishment uh, and and up nonetheless, all the while, uh, this uplifting inspirational spirit of hope through the arts. I, I mean, it's like... I'm listening to you and I'm going, holy smoke, how did all that come together? I mean, it's fascinating that at any point in life, uh, such things can be combined. But under the circumstances, it must be, I don't know, I, I just think it's, I think it's a bit of salvation for everybody involved. I don't know, is that putting it to. Am I overreacting?
0: No I, I, no, I mean, I appreciate your enthusiasm. And just as I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you again, I, I'm really grateful for that. You no, know, you know, the collaboration feels special. But, yes. So Maggie and I think to the clients as well. And it. It was, you know, as art sometimes is. It was just fun making it. So it was like, we're embarking on some creative project, and that can always have some joy in just the process where we get to revise our writing and and you know respond to one another and and edit images, uh, you know, kind of pick and choose among the images what we wanted to represent us. And so there is there is joy just in the in the in the collaborative process. But then, you know, being able to share. Um, you know, to engage in a dialogue, but then also share that dialogue uh, with other people, viewers, or, you know, people who visited the conference, you know, it was great. I mean, I, I think, and where it'll go,
2: you know, it's, it, I think there, there, it also opened up a lot of possibilities because mm. I think people who've encountered the project you know,
0: have inquired about what we're doing, about the efforts that we're making and, and whether this is something that can be
2: sustained with this particular client or with other people who yes. may be creative and in the similar circumstances. And like I said before, you know, you
0: know, art isn't always going to be the thing that someone latches on to. I mean people who are, you know, incarcerated, uh, have a lot of different things that that they value or or, or might help them uh, build a better life, you know, whether it's family or religion or or you know, some other kind of some other, any, you know, any other kind of activity they're interested in. It doesn't necessarily have to be art or or creative output but um, for this particular client, I think for, you know, a lot of other, you know, people who might have uh, some creative inclination who are incarcerated, you know, that could be you know, something, something special for them to uh, you know, rather than than relieve uh, you know, the, the the suffering that you that you might undergo while you're incarcerated and also make it, you know I think people who are incarcerated sometimes you know I don't want to speak to outside of my own personal experience you know, I don't know I, I, and I can't speak for everybody, but but you know the idea that you're in there and that you can do something that is worthwhile mm. rather than something negative. Um, I think people a lot of people want that you know they yes. want to be you know. So, well, with this particular client, I think it was, it was also special because he is, uh, you know, he's a talented guy, and mm-hmm. so that's another thing to explore. It's like, okay, well, this is, you know, just an untapped talented person, and you know, where where can that go if you if you're working on something positive and, and something
2: engaging? You know, yes. maybe maybe you can create further work. Maybe this can help
1: your life be better, and maybe it can make you. It's like the, It's like yep. ha- at least having a temporary going back to the road not taken, and then taking it. We we're going to take a short break. Uh, we are talking to, uh, well, a man of all seasons it seems here, uh, writer, artist, and legal mitigator David Bendernagle, and his work with his wife Maggie, uh, and uh, well, it's just been it's been moving. I I don't know what I expected but it's really got me. So we're gonna take a break. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
2: And now,
3: another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Dallas Buyers Club is a remarkable film famous for the commitment it received from star Matthew McConaughey, who achieved an emaciated state for his role as an AIDS victim. It succeeds not only as a deep character study, but also as a historical exploration of a time when we all wondered where this new plague might lead. McConaughey plays Ron Woodruff, a bigoted Texas roughneck who finds he has AIDS and only weeks to live. Not one to consider rules, Ron begins a fight for survival. First, he obtains the new AIDS drug the way he would any illegal pleasure, through the black market azt holds promise but early on it does more harm than good hearing that hope is available across the border he travels to mexico finding effective methods to keep the reaper at bay returning to form he smuggles these miracle drugs across the border to sell to other desperate aids victims hey profit ain't a bad thing woodruff is based on a real person through his complicated and interesting journey in the film, he finds ways to circumvent our closed-minded medical establishment and along the way comes to no compassion for his fellow man. His legacy is honored through this low-budget wonder of a film. Dallas Buyers Club. Not in theaters.
1: Discovery through rental.
3: Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com.
1: Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. My guest today, David Bendernago, a writer, an artist, and a legal mitigator who deals with clients who have serious charges against them, works with his wife, who's also an artist, has many talents, and both happy parents of a sweet young daughter that I had the pleasure of meeting at the University of Virginia, oh, maybe a year ago or more now, David has been talking about this combining, actually he has done this with his wife, with a client in prison, to combining the talents of the client's writing and David's writing and uh, Maggie, his wife's artistic talents uh, as a printmaker and a book binder maker, uh, all of those things coming together and and creating this marvelous, I think... Uh, inspiring, a hopeful, creative adventure. And it just reminded me, as David and I were chatting, I told him off air that um, when I was a kid, I thought prisons, uh, even as a child, my impression of what, you know, probably the only impression I had was television, that prisons, people were were not getting the right idea about prisons. That, uh, of course, now we've gone so far, we have prisons for profit, these private prisons, but that even as a child, I mean, and I mean 10 years old, I thought prisons should be a place where people had made a mistake, so they go, and all the men in prisons should be taught how to be priests. I was, was, and still am, Roman Catholic Italian. I was a kid. Give me a break. And the women would be taught how to play classical piano or sing opera, and that's what I thought would be great, you know, that prison would do. Well, that was a child's POV. I think what David and his wife Maggie perhaps discovered uh, in in out there at the Fair Play, Art and Social Justice at St. Ambrose University in Davenport, Iowa, was how to pull together Uh, The arts and uh, social services, and writing, and his legal expertise, and come up with something that is really humane. David, get me out of this. Talk to me.
0: No, no, I, I, I I appreciate the story and the, the context. Um, yeah, the, the the project that we're doing in Iowa. One of my colleagues uh, referred to it. Uh, in an interesting way, she described what we were
2: doing as uh, forward looking mitigation, yes, and so I think, and I thought that was a really smart way to put it
0: and I think that's in, in some sense, it's always been a part of mitigation work i mean, in addition to understanding where the client came from you you know it, it is on the attorney's team to show you know how the client is going to behave going forward, yes. you know and because because one of the things that the state, one of the things that the state is trying to show, well, as they put on their case, is that this, pers- this person who's been charged with these very serious crimes is uh, aggressive and a threat going forward. Mm. So, you have, you know, they, it's always been a part of mitigation, too, to show, you know, another side to that, you know, to combat that narrative, you know, where they say, well, the client did these monstrous things in the past, and, you know, it's our belief that. They're going to do monstrous things in the future, even if they're jailed. I mean, that's the one—you know—that's the argument in in save, you know, uh, that that is
2: pushed to to promote and support the death penalty, which is, well, this guy just can't be anywhere, mm-hmm. um, too dangerous. And so, as we get to know these clients, you know, you're you're looking for information that will complicate that uh, assertion,
0: and you know. As I've found in my experience with the office, you know, you, you spend time with a person, you, you can get to know them and kind of start making, uh, you know, your own uh, assessment of, of, you know, what that person might, uh, you know, might be. What is their purpose or identification at all? But I felt it's also imperative uh, to to also help the client Succeed, and so you're employing because they undergo the uh, you know the machinery of the criminal justice system. Okay, here you you're gay and then you have a trial, or or you know what have you? Those kind of that gauntlet, so to speak. You're helping them survive that, which is itself a very stressful process that involves a lot of pain, uh, you know not just to the client, but the client also is kind of observing the pain of everyone else who's kind of affected by this. So it's it's the
2: victims, it's the family of the victims, it's the family of the client himself. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all these people are kind of undergoing this months and years-long process that can be very painful. So
0: so I think one of the jobs of the the legal team and the mitigation specialist uh, in particular is to help the the client uh, survive that ordeal um, and, and, and... and succeed, you know, and, and and part of that is, and, and then so, so there's that there's that aspect of it that that process, but then there's also the aftermath. So if the person is incarcerated, sometimes for the rest of their, lab, their life, you know, uh, what will that look like? And helping the person succeed in that way is also helping them with what, what, what maybe my colleague was referring to with forward-looking mitigation. Like how can we help this person embrace? A positive future that will be uplifting for that person, and then also persuasive to the authorities or persuasive to the to a jury in terms of what is this person going to be doing going forward. And so, art can be for some people. I think uh, art or writing, creative expression. You know, like I said before, it could be for another guy. It could be um, deepening family relationships. It could be religion. I mean, it could be all these things as well at, at one time. Um, it could be uh, some kind of handicraft, or just anything that the person could be doing, some kind of uh, vocation that the person can 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 attach to to help them going forward. And so, with this particular client that Maggie and I collaborated with, I could see that he had a certain type of intelligence and creativity that lent itself to art making, and he expressed an interest
1: in doing that. Yeah, I mean, you also don't want to you know, shepherd a client into an activity that's not going to be beneficial to them or, or is not of interest
2: to them. Exactly. You know, and you have to be delicate with that because as the person to advocate, you know, you can influence
0: that person in terms of they, they may, in some cases, be looking to you for guidance. And so you don't want to push someone into something that's not helpful for them. But in this case, the client showed a very uh, strong desire to do art and then having the exchanged writing. And the possibility presented itself to, to take part in a, in this portfolio exchange um, you know, I could see that it was providing something to the client he seemed very excited about it and seemed to be feeding him you know a kind of positive affirmation and, and uh, constructive you know constructive activity to take him away from the difficulty of the situation at hand and also to to help him show his worthiness, so to speak, for the human community. Yeah. You know, this person can do something positive. He can do something beautiful. He can do something that is, uh, you know, anti-violence and something that is, uh, you know, just a personally rewarding and, and ultimately peaceful thing to do. And, and I think that's part of helping our clients succeed. Uh, it, it, you know, if if that's you know something that they're uh, able
1: to attach to and, and feel some conviction behind okay david uh, this has been fascinating and i i want to move on only because of time i, I sh- we should mention i don't know that we did that the the product that you and maggie produced with your client this collaboration was called uh there's a light on him is that correct yes okay. yeah that's, that's, uh, that's what it was called okay and, and i plan to
0: document that on my writing, writing website at some point, but, um, you know, like a lot of uh, artists, my website is under construction at all times.
1: So. Sure. <laughs> yes. no, all right, I'm, I'm going yeah. to switch. Forgive me for interrupting. Uh, all of this Notice. has been fascinating and, and truly has got me thinking about so many things. Perhaps we will talk in the future. But first of all, you wrote The End of the City, and that's what we talked about when we first talked On my other radio show, The End of the City was a book. You got it published. And then things kind of went uh, awry with the Pink Fish Press. And you never received royalties for the sales. So that issue. But you're also planning to re-release The End of the City this summer, 2016. And you're planning a sequel to The End of the City. So talk to us about all of that. Put that all together for us.
2: Sure, no problem. So the end of the city was a uh,
0: project. It's a novel. It's about a. It's got two narrators. Uh, young, t- uh, a teenage boy who is struggling with the death of his father, and then uh, uh, a sort of fantastical alter ego is the other narrative uh, narrator. This uh, uh, he's an assassin, and he's sort of uh, trying to navigate the dramas and conflicts of his uh, his more violent world. And so those stories kind of unfold side by side, and 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 hopefully act as a counterpoint to one another, in providing insight to you know, how these people are dealing with with violence in their lives or loss in their lives. And it, it, it has a lot of references to comic books, video games, culture. Um, you know, because it comes from the mind of this teen you know, and in some ways it comes from the mind of this teenager and then ultimately you know, showcases the world of this kind of over the top
2: anti uh, hero who's trying to redeem himself, uh, in some sense. So that was a book I started working on back
0: in graduate school more than a decade ago and then was finally published by the Pinkfish Press in two thousand thirteen, as you alluded to uh the publishing
2: side uh was less satisfying than the artistic side Mm, (laughs) i'm not mm -hmm. sure how the book turned out but um the press and i ended up
0: parting ways because i was never paid and that was you know kind of a dramatic ending to my well not an ending but it was a one chapter in my uh education in publishing and it was a little a little bitter but but we parted ways um I learned some things, um, and I'm hoping to really release the book independently this summer. And then, meanwhile, as you said, I'm working on a sequel, as yet untitled, but where it kind of follows up with this
2: world that I created with the first book, and, mm. and hopefully use it to address, uh, you know,
0: concerns I have now. You know, when I first started writing the, the you know, the the end of the city was written, I mean, it's in the voice of a teenager and then in the voice of this kind of book person, but it also addressed concerns that I had in my younger life, you know, as we were coming out of uh, September 11th and just a lot of other things that were on my mind at the time that I started writing that. And, you know, now I'm hoping to use the sequel to to address, you know, some of the things that I'm, I'm concerned about now and, and and hopefully bring some of my uh, insight that I've gained over the years to, to bring something new and
1: fun to the table with a new book. So that's uh, in progress. Now, you are do you live in Reston, Virginia?
0: Yes. Yeah, so huh? I've uh, returned there after some years living in other places.
1: Ah. Because uh, yeah. I used to live in Great Falls, Virginia, when I first came back from New York City. I lived in Great Falls, Virginia, and, and shopped a great deal in Reston, Virginia. Uh, quite closely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, what um, when you uh, I, I think the point the point, and then we'll move on from this. But uh, the point I made even, I think, in the introduction is that here you are a talented writer. You write a book, The End of the City. You find a publisher, which is already a, a um, an amazing achievement for someone out there alone with a book trying to get it done. And you said the artistic part was fine, which I am assuming means that they said, This is a good book, let us help you make it better, let us do some editing, and they worked with you and you were more or less very pleased with that. But then the business side of of taking care of the financial obligations to you did not happen. So you 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 uh you worked with a Washington state attorney and and, and got that contract um uh Terminated. Did that sort of launch, or were you already studying law? Did that sort of launch your uh, oh, yeah, love of a, mitigation? No, uh, no. I, actually, I was. Uh, uh,
2: that was not the impetus for me going to law school. It was kind of an interesting, like, uh-huh. echo. Uh, but I, I, I grew up kind of been interested in
0: public service and working with people who are in crisis, or working with people who. Um, were kind of struggling at the fringes, so uh, working with people who were—I was, was going to say low-income populations—but a lot of people I worked with were kind of in the very, very blend of what that might entail. Like they were really on the edge, and, uh-huh. and so I've worked with—I've worked with people uh, over the years um, in various different sort of social service type jobs or volunteer work, and then that. I went to law school with the idea that that would enable me to, you know, might like open more doors to do that work. And that's just always totally something I've been drawn to. In public service were always just things that I wanted to do. So so I chased both of those things in, in kind of
2: interesting ways, I guess. And sometimes they overlap and intersect, yeah. and other times, uh, you know,
1: they're, they're, they diverge. Um, you know, but they've always been a big part of what I'm doing. You know, you, you I know you were a public defense investigator in Seattle uh, before uh, being a mitigation specialist in Northern Virginia, capital defender. But it seems to me that always you've been interested in this combo duo of uh, public service and the arts. And as you say, sometimes they're closer than other times. Like I love theater and television and movies. I work in that as a career, but I love politics and political radio. So sometimes they cross or whatever. Anyway, I right. understand that. Tell me though, before graduate law school, you went to the University of Virginia. I'm, I'm interested where you and Maggie learned your print artistic talents.
0: Yeah, yeah, we, well, um, at the sake of sending two
2: sacrament, Maggie and I are high school sweethearts, so okay. we come back you know, we're from and we're both in Reston, So we both went to UVA back in the
0: late 90s and we both gravitated towards the arts uh, and studied printmaking. We studied, actually, the ESS and the Cameo were two of the that we studied a few others, but those were the primary influences at that time, and they were great educators, really ran a cool, uh, fun, engaging department, Department, and that's where we jumped off with a really, really got, I mean, I think, that actually, to, to correct that a little bit, you know, we, Maggie and I both had a really great uh, art teacher uh, uh, in high school, Miss Monroe, who uh-huh. uh, her, actually, just sort of an interesting twist, she was an excellent art teacher and still remains a mentor to us. And she, in a funny twist, ended up living in Seattle uh, oh. after we moved there, but, but really that's sort of just a coincidence. But anyway, we, we had a really great formative art experiences with Miss Monroe and then with uh, Dean and Academy at, at UVA, and that we just kept following that. And so Maggie ended up going to the University of Iowa for printmaking school after we left, uh, after a few years after from USA. And I went uh, and got a, an MFA in, in, in fiction writing from the University of Washington, thus um, kicking off her well, part of our, part of our uh, journey through Seattle. She took a couple different incarnations over the years, but, but we both studied, the, you know, she studied different studied and writing and, and, you know, that's always been something that we've done separately and together and collaborated and and has always
1: been either in the forefront or in the background as we were doing other things. So. You know, it's a great story, I'll tell you. We need to go, but tell us uh, tell us just a little more about the end of the city. Where do we get it? I know it's being re-released this summer, 2016. Is that timing political, or just that's the way it is, and how do we get no, a hold I of think
2: it? That, yeah, that, that timing is still, <laughs>
0: I mean, it's still up in the air. As I said, I've got a website, which is com, and I can be contacted through, or... I guess uh, if I'm putting all my stuff out there at, at, ben and at gmail.com I can be contacted about all the copies of the book that, have been out there that I know of right now are either going to come in a if you contact me or I think there might be some like used copies on Amazon or something like that but um, the new ones I'm not sure what forum uh, I'll be selling them out of just yet but I'm hoping to, to get them out again this summer as you said and that'll be really exciting because uh, in some ways republishing it means you can also address uh, like, like the uh, visual presentation of the book is something that you know I like the cover as it is now but I also love agreeing with artwork so you know Maggie and I may put a new cover on it uh, you know, there's lots of just little things you can do but, but anyway the book will be coming back out soon hopefully and and I'm excited about that. I'm also really excited about uh, the fact that my daughter uh, got to come with us to the conference in Iowa, yeah. and just um, started
1: zigzagging back to where we were before. Sure. But it, it's really fun to just emphasize to her,
2: you know, the value of every individual. Yes. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the dignity of our clients, and Maggie and I are just trying to show that example to
0: our daughter that, that, that you know the clients just like anybody shouldn't be just cast away and we can embrace the clients uh, just their faults and and try to uh, show some forgiveness and put some effort into making them contributing members of our community so uh, you know
1: that's the effort that i'm making and hopefully it's hopefully it's the positive one all right two quick questions with two quick answers number one how old is your daughter she is six all right good for you uh you know, starting her in this atmosphere. It's just great. And the second question is give us again the website. I think you broke up a little bit the last time. Okay,
0: sure. The website is com.
1: Very good. All right. David, wow. David Bendernagel, like I said author of the novel The End of the City when with his wife Maggie not only did they create the great art of their 6-year-old daughter but printmaking as well and and David is also a legal mitigator with the um it's the Northern Virginia Capital Defender so David thank you so very much for being on the show we wish you all the very best we love the combination of of, of, of serving the public and doing so creatively through the arts and we appreciate you being on the show and wish you all the very best. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. Wish you the best as well.
1: Take care. Okay. Bye now. Bye-bye. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice.
3: Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. There are those who leave large footprints. Charmed, maybe. Smarter, maybe. But a positive attitude, a belief that all things are possible, a willingness to laugh, to blaze trails, to take chances, creating opportunities for luck, and the fortitude to go on when things crash are certainly common traits. And present in spades in the case of Jerry Weintraub. As chronicled in the insider documentary, His Way. Jerry was larger than life in the world of entertainment, a legendary producer in both music and film. He ran with the largest of the large, Frank Sinatra, Elvis, John Denver. He ran studios and produced industry changing motion pictures, small like Diner, and large like the modern series that began with Ocean's Eleven. He was known for straightforward honesty, except when a white lie or two would get a film cast famously telling the giant egos of Ocean's Eleven that the others were all signed, using each as bait for the others. Even in his personal life, he followed his own rules. He loved his wife and lived with his mistress, and everyone was happy. Sure, his way is a puff piece, but an enjoyable puff once in a while never hurt anybody. His way. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com.
1: Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Millennials, life between Nixon and Trump. We can't afford Bernie or bust to become the TSA agents of politics, for nothing is saved by lying to ourselves, as we baby boomers discovered after voting for Ralph Nader. Despite disappeared dinosaurs, engineers, and scientific technology, nature has renewed itself throughout a millennium of megastorms and climate injustice. However, because we now live in a wounded ecosystem, begging to ebb and flow with humanity, we need revelation. Whether weather can be saved from us, only tellus knows but let's start with unelecting snowballs from congress and keeping baby bison out of back seats mob rule tends to reduce reasonable thought and pervert all our founding fathers lincoln susan b anthony alice paul the greatest generation and the best and the brightest lived and died to protect, defend, and preserve from anti-American plutocracy. We have choices, reason or reality show host, common sense or climate change denial, millennials running for Congress or cuddling with devices occupying social media. For to advance to reform, we need evolve from the reality of where we are right now. If we truly burn for renewal, then Democrats need to be the clarion call to replace our tea-stained Congress of corporately compromised conservatives with climate-aware, university-educated, and technically savvy millennials when msnbc hosts proclaim in astonishment their disbelief that republicans are in agreement and democrats are divided their memory is historically deprived republicans have always anchored america in lock-step to make political points while Democrats, thinking forward, have been our nation's troubleshooters, like making trouble for NRA neocons who aren't the least bit troubled by the troubles of 99% of American places of employment, malls, church and moviegoers, health clinics, or school kids. Indeed, in the age of robber barons, the 1% considered it their duty to contribute to, as Scrooge put it, prisons and workhouses in the same spirit old men bestowed the privilege to vote on women but still roe vs wade is under threat and for millennials of color there are now private prisons for teachers for unions and for the mostly white middle class the need for a second job or even a third job to make the end times left behind by bush cheney meet in the reality of angry old men so let's not be lulled into believing temperatures of Bernie's fcc fundraising millennials can be put back in the bottle as easily as they were tapped to war on the status quo america's returns depend on a united clinton and sanders front to successfully do battle with the billionaire vegas basement dweller and the cokeheads of the indian wells california club it will take more than one seventy four year old with a slingshot to rock out corporatism's Goliath lust for a new world order of global control. Listen. Before the 1997 warm saltwater ocean currents shifted icebergs and baby boomers into the weather extremes of abrupt climate change, I, too, was a student activist not burning bras or administration buildings or getting pepper sprayed by low on the human intelligence scale oakland campus police nor being shot to death by nixon's national guard of young millennials though not digitally connected sometime between lbj's tonkin gulf lies and lying nixon's kent state We millennials of our day spoke truth to power, and with our eyes and minds opened and focused on the faces and points of view of others seeking solutions from different perspectives, we didn't imagine telephoning death threats. And though too late for those killed during our Vietnam era, it worked for all, except Vietnam war vets and only against corporate interests who sent them to die for profit. It is for us, the baby boomers, to assist millennials in saving what we lost, our national essence, international humanity, and honorable earthly stewardship. For claiming exceptionalism is our story makes it neither history nor future. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. And to all millennials, welcome to the good fight, and thank you.